Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Carl Easter. I'm an executive coach and a strong advocate of superior leadership. On this podcast, we explore the essence of leadership through interviews and dialogue and provide you with tangible steps you can take to improve your leadership performance. As a best-selling author, John Maxwell says, leadership is about one life influencing another. The stories, experiences, and wisdom you hear throughout each episode will inspire you to step up, lead, and influence those around you. I am delighted to welcome you to another episode of the Healthcare Leadership Excellence Podcast. Today with me again is my colleague from the coaching group, Maz Antolin. And Maz and I are going to discuss today the topic of being calm in high crisis situations and how important that is. So we're just going to be going back and forth on some thoughts. And this is probably one of the very most important topics that we've discussed because the ability to maintain your calm when everything's flying around you in a bad way, people see that and they remember that. And those that are calm are followed better after the crisis passes, which it always will. So today we're going to hit some material that you really want to sit right down and remember. It's a game changer. So Maz, what do we have? I agree with you, Carl. This might be one of the most important topics for leaders post-pandemic, you know, because we've had a lot of crisis situations during the pandemic, and now might be the great, a good time to evaluate and see what we can do best for the next crisis situation coming our way. Absolutely. First question would be, what are some of the most, I mean, some of the common responses to crisis situations? and why is it important to remain calm, especially as leaders? There's there's lots of psychological reasons, but let's just go to the biologic reasons first. Our brain wakes up in the morning assuming a steady state, status quo as we call it. And most of us, because we're not always in a pandemic or the fire catching our house on fire, we're, we're calm. When the brain sees a situation arise that it doesn't think it has the capacity to handle, it goes into crisis mode, not because it wants to damage us, but because it wants to protect us. And when we react in a lashing out manner or yelling or raising our voice, our actual creativity, the brain registers that limbic system in the brain is in constant communication with the prefrontal cortex, which is called our executive brain. Limbic is, the, as they say in the literature, in jokingly, the lizard brain, which is reactive fear, fight or flight, I'm out of here, versus the executive brain, which says, no, we probably can handle this. Let's look at things calmly. Let's step back. We need, so the typical classic response is not positive. It's reactive, it's fight or flight, and it literally shuts down our rational thought because we go into survival mode instead of thriving mode. So that is, that's a common response. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up for it because it's just naturally, biologically human to do that. However, it's almost never productive. And that's where flipping our thinking 
and preparing ahead of time, and we'll get into that in a few minutes, thinking ahead of the situation so that when the crisis comes up, we are prepared. That's right. You just read a book, Deliberate Calm, and can you share with us some of your biggest takeaway from that marvelous book? Yeah, and well said on marvelous book. Just about everything that McKinsey puts out is marvelous. McKinsey Consulting, they are brilliant thinkers. And three of their partners came together to write this book. And it is definitely worth the read. I love audiobooks. Um, on this one, I, there's just too much information. You're going to have to listen to it two or three times to really get into it. But one of the biggest takeaways is right in the beginning of the book where it helps us to know that our reactive database is like, as they call it, it's the, it's not the tip of the iceberg, it's everything underneath the water. It is accumulation of upbringing, recent events, tragic events, input from news, anything that forms our reactive database is something we have to be aware of, or it will take us in the wrong direction in a crisis because all of our reactivity is based on history. And the current situation may not be correct. It may be different from past history, but, but the brain doesn't ask a lot of questions. It just kicks that lizard brain into high gear. And we follow that thinking. And many times people say, well, I just felt this way. I love the quote that says, feelings are not facts. And do not believe everything you feel. Powerful statements from a good colleague of mine. Another, and this dovetails with another one of their good points that they use throughout the book. Um, and I have not read the entire book yet. I'm just amazed in the 80 some pages I have read. It's amazing. The familiar zone versus the adaptive zone. And the familiar zone would be the reactive brain. This is what we're used to. This is what we think because of past experience. And the adaptive zone is where people realize that their responses are a choice. Um, I can't help it is a phrase a leader should never say because it's, it's really not true. We can help it, but we have to prepare for it. Thank you for that. What are do you have some real world examples of individuals who have demonstrated exceptional calmness and composure in crisis situations? Oh yes, it's story time. Um, <laughs> I, as you know, I'm a great fan of stories, and so there's several here that really illustrate what you just asked. Perhaps one of the most impactful is uh, U.S. Air Flight. Uh, 1549, which taking out of LaGuardia Airport several years ago, seconds after takeoff, ran through a flock of geese, and it knocked out both of their engines. They're on the ascent. So when you're powering up to get up to 35,000 cruise altitude, the, the airplane is on an incline up. And suddenly, they had no power. They had two pilots in that. Um, they had the captain, Sullenberger, and Jeff Skiles was the first officer. 
Fortunately for the 60-some passengers and crew in the back, Skiles, although he was co-pilot, had over 15,000 flight hours. The captain, Sullenberger, had over 20,000. So Skiles, the first officer, was handling the plane on takeoff. Instantly, left seat, Captain Sullenberger took over the flight and Skiles started looking at all the protocols instantly. They could not have handled it better. Flight control wanted them to get to an airport. They knew they couldn't. And the only flat surface they could land on was the Hudson River. Dropping a plane into water is generally a lousy idea. But because both of them knew their airplane or new planes very well. It was uh, Skiles first flight on an A320, an Airbus that it was his first flight, but he had over 15,000 hours, as I've mentioned, of flight experience. And to review some of the tapes of their flight recorder interchange is just an absolute testament to the ability to calm yourself and let your deep data take over the situation. They landed on the river. Immediately, the passengers went out onto the wing. Ferry boats came in from the sides of the river, and not a single life was lost. Phenomenal. Another great example, again, out of New York City, it was the tragedy of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Mayor Rudy Giuliani was um, the mayor at the time. And this was an unprecedented attack on U.S. soil. Never since the Civil War had so many U.S. people died on U.S. territory, on U.S. soil in one event. Thousands lost their lives, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So someone asked Giuliani what he did to maintain calm and direction during that time. And he said, I merely focused on the next most important thing. Now, his city's in shambles. They don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know if there's more attacks. They don't know if there's survivors. There's so many things they don't know. But he knew that showing up as a calm presence was so important. Two more quick stories. Um, Apollo 13, they're heading to the moon. And they've had two successful moonwalks, Apollo 11, Apollo 12. And suddenly something goes wrong in their oxygen supplies is something went wrong in one of the systems and they started to lose crucial function. What Houston Flight Control did and those three astronauts did is still seen as one of the most amazing events in space history. Because using only what they had on board, because obviously that's all they had, and the director of Houston Flight Control and his ability to just shape thought, shape cooperation, and not accept failure because if they failed, we would have had the horror of having three men float into space to a very, very tragic end. And yet, all three came back alive. As John Maxwell says, 
do you bring water to the to the flame or do you bring gasoline and the last example of crisis is several years ago hiking in one of the beautiful national parks here um in utah in i think he was down in moab in canyonlands if i'm not mistaken but we had this hiker aaron ralstein who was hiking by himself and he got um his arm he was down in a in a little sh rock chute a rock shifted and trapped his arm he was there for a hundred and some hours he had the presence of mind how he did this people are still trying to figure it out he realized that if he didn't do something drastic he would die there and he was already dehydrated he couldn't move he had his arm trapped his right arm so he had the presence of mind maz to break his arm cut through his arm with a pocket knife tool wrap his arm in a bandage or in a shirt whatever he had he then rappelled 60 feet out of the canyon and walked three and a half miles before someone found him he now has a prosthetic arm and still rock climbs so whether you're landing a jet on the hudson whether you're encouraging people who are under terrorist attack whether you're saving astronauts 250,000 miles from earth or pulling yourself out of a deadly situation those people demonstrated the ability to calm that lizard brain in a way that is almost beyond belief but these are ordinary humans that did it and i think we can learn lessons from them of how they approached it wow just wow those four examples carl are we can end now and just take the time <laughs> <laughs> to digest what you just told us, those powerful stories. Imagine me as a new leader. I was just promoted to be a new leader. I was promoted in this position because I accomplished great things. But among amongst those great things, not a single one of them were involved or included crisis situations. I just, I just accomplished the tasks that were given to me. What can you advise a new leader on his or her pursuit in intentionally choosing to be calm rather than be reactive in crisis situations? A super question. And you've used the key word, intentional. Solenberger had 20,000 hours, Skiles had 15. They all, of flight hours, actual cockpit hours, that's, that's years of flight time. So, and the key here is, because people ask me, I, I'd like some tools on how to be um, better in crisis situation. There are no tools. Um, they need to, a new leader, and myself included, that lizard brain will always be part of my my makeup. I'm human. You're human. So we have to know that. However, remember that the brain has a very difficult time differentiating between real and virtual situations. Both of those pilots had also 
many, many hours in what are called flight simulators. Flight simulators are multi-million dollar apparatus that are only 15 feet off the ground. So they're pretending to fly. They get up in that app, up in that flight simulator and the instructor on his keyboard can key in um, Airbus 320 um, and he can key or she can key in all sorts of different scenarios that the pilots have to react to. It's strategic preparation for situational possibilities. Now, some people say, why would I want to take my good time and think about possible bad things? You know, I'll just, I'll just deal with it when it comes. I'll just deal with it when it comes. And don't underestimate the devastating power of the lizard brain. If you're not prepared, the lizard brain will take over. So that's why I think it's really wise to, as a new or a seasoned leader, be thinking of, okay, what haven't I paid attention to? Um, what haven't I really done that could prepare me uh, for for a right response. If and these are questions that came from a pre presentation that I saw the other day called Red Team Coaching by Bryce Hoffman. Um, just consider a couple of these. Um, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Now, in a crisis, you have a problem, but the worst thing you can do is solve the wrong problem in the crisis. So, as a new leader, perhaps with people that are around you. That's why I love mastermind groups so much that you have a think tank of minds that can help you prepare, but you really need to be intentional. What could happen a year from now? And this is one of my favorite questions. What could happen a year from now that we haven't thought of yet? And when I ask that people look at me, how would we even know what that could be? Well, a year from now, you'll know. And you'll be kicking yourself that you didn't think of it. So I bet if we really took some time and thought, what could go wrong this year? Well, shouldn't we think of what could go right? Yes, spend time on that too. But really drill down and what, what are we missing? What are links that we haven't seen yet that we need to pay attention to? Um, and force yourself not to come up with simple little answers. Or the worst one that I hear so often, we don't have time for that. I'm sure we'll be able to deal with it when the problem actually occurs. And that is tragic leadership. Because I've heard, can't quote this exactly, but to prepare for a 10-day space shuttle flight, the space shuttle astronauts practice for six, seven months at least. I'm thinking it may even surpass a year. Why? Because they're going at 17,500 miles in Earth per hour in Earth orbit. And when you've got a problem at that speed, it's too late to think. They want the reaction to be calm, just like that pilot when he turned the plane and went back toward the city. He was, he was in perfect overdrive mode. His database, he knew he had a job to do. 
And I think the big thing here is he knew he was prepared, even though something like this had never happened before. This was a first. To our knowledge, no other plane has had two engines knocked out on ascent by geese. You can Google that, and I think it'll come up with one search result. Yet everything else came into him to handle it perfectly. But he also, I think this is important, um, he got a lot of credit for doing this. But he was the first to push back on that credit saying that without, and I love this response, without the help of the co-pilot who was telling him, this is our next step. This is our next step. You don't do this. This is what the protocols say. Engine left is out. This is what we need to do. The pilot was looking out. He couldn't read the dials. He couldn't look down. He was trying to keep the plane from running into things. And he was on a river. And once it landed in the river, if the boats hadn't come out from the side, great, we have 50-some people on the wings and we're sinking. That's not a good deal. But so I think in crisis, having ahead of time, he had his co-pilot. And by great fortune, they had boats that got there immediately. Also, they had a marvelous flight crew. So what's all this about? Well, if you're a new leader or even a seasoned one, where's Who's your co-pilot? Who's your boats on the river? Who are, who are your flight attendants in the back getting people out on the wing? Thing that they have trained for every single year, but none of them had ever done before. Because generally, you don't get a chance to do that. When you, when you crash a plane, you're dead. But this is one of the few crashes where no one died because people were trained and it was perfectly executed. It, it it was a huge, huge event that ha- ended well. So new leader, make sure you're surrounded. Join a mastermind group. Get with other people. Don't put yourself into an administrative silo. Ahead of time, bring in greater thinking than yourself. Um, and then when the crisis hits, you can pull the triggers on what you need to pull and have people there because you've anticipated using your word intentionally to do what you need to do. Thank you so much, Carl, for that wonderful advice. And to our listeners, if you're like me and are wanting to learn more about crisis leadership or managing oneself in crisis situations, please feel free to send us a message on our website or in LinkedIn with any questions or topics that you would like us to discuss in our future episodes. Carl, once again, thank you for today. Absolutely. And thanks for being with us today on this uh, last episode of our Healthcare Leadership Excellence podcast. And we invite you to join us next time. We release every single Monday and look forward to you being with us and also leaving us, as Maz mentioned, any feedback you have, happy to consider it and use it in future episodes. Thanks again. And as always, lead well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope that you found it valuable for the work that you do. If you did, 
please do us a favor of leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is vital in helping us enhance our content and reach more listeners like you. Furthermore, if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please share the link with them. And if you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on LinkedIn or through our website at coachinggroupinc.com. Thank you again for listening. Until we meet again, keep learning and leading with excellence.